Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, from the Santa Monica Studios, ready to bring you another episode of Tennis Talk from around the globe. And we have a very special guest on this week's show. It's Monica Puig, the 2016 gold medalist, the first in Puerto Rico's history. She has a lot to talk about in her upbringing, that importance of Puerto Rican culture, how she got into the sport that epic run to win the gold at the Rio Olympics, the end of her tennis career, the transition to broadcasting, all that and so much more with Monica Puig. It's a great chat that you will be sure to enjoy. And then I talked to Jeff Chisiver, who's calling matches on TC's airwaves all week from 5 to 9. We discussed Taylor Fritz getting the title in Delray, breaking into the top five and having the mantle as a top American. Daniil Medvedev getting back on track, Iga dominating, Andy Murray continuing to fight, and the unfortunate struggles of Dominic Team. Chiz always has a lot to say. We break all that down. First up, Monica Puig, followed by Jeff Chisiver. This is Tennis Channel Inside In. Let's start the show. All right, now with us on Tennis Channel Inside In, my honor indeed to talk to a uh, mainstay on the Pro Tour for a while, a uh, pioneer and a champion. 2016, she's most known for becoming Puerto Rico's first singles champion in any sport in the Olympics. The gold medalist, Monica Puig. Monica, thanks for joining the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I don't use that word pioneer loosely. Like <laughs> it's, you know, it's very rare to get that esteem. But no, it's uh, it's been a while since then. I kind of wanted to go through a bunch of your career and, and everything that's happened. But first off, how's this transition been now that you've had like a solid year of not competing anymore? Staying busy, which we'll get to, but not being an active tennis player. How's the transition? It's up and down, to be honest. There are days where I'm really, really sad that I'm not playing and, you know, days where I have uh, those moments where I'm just really down. But, you know, I'm, I'm getting used to life in general. One thing that I really did not realize that I enjoyed very much was being at home, being with my husband, being with my dogs. Um, it's just something different that I haven't been able to experience for many years. So that definitely makes those harder days a lot easier to deal with. So I want to get into your backstory because the Puerto Rican side, I think your, your dad's Cuban, right? Cuban-American. So yep. you had ties to the Miami area. Um, in 2016, I was actually at Indian Wells, and you, I saw you play a tough match against Kazakina. Oh, it was on was court a three. Nightmare. A night match. But what I, and not to bring up bad memories, but no, what I remember is the crowd support was pretty legit. And I think that might just be a, a Puerto Rican culture thing, but also for some of these countries that don't have much in the in terms of lineage, we're kind of seeing that with Poland and Iga. They were out in droves supporting you. Unfortunately, it didn't go your way, but that support kind of stayed in just about your entire career, having that Puerto Rican love. Yeah, no, it was really great. And the good thing is that I found Puerto Ricans in all corners of the world. So whether I was in China, Japan, um, you know, there was always a Puerto Rican in the crowd. And that was always really good, especially when I'm playing in countries where, you know, you feel a little bit more lonely, whether it's, you know, in the Middle East or in China, Asia, and all of that stuff, you know, when you have that warmth and that crowd that's backing you, uh, it's really cool. And obviously, you know, Miami was a huge tournament for that. New York, there's plenty of Puerto Ricans there as well. So it's always nice to have that support. 
So what's your tennis origin story? Were, did you have anyone in the family that played? Yeah. So actually my mom okay. played when she was in high school okay. growing up. My dad, you know, continues to play recreationally. He plays mm-hmm. maybe two or three times a week. But um, my mom was the one who gave me my first tennis racket. Um, I was a little bit of my brother's shadow growing up. I have an older brother by three years. And whatever he did, I wanted to do as well. Didn't really have an identity yet. Didn't yeah. know what I wanted to do. And my mom kind of gave me the racket and... I just started taking clinics. I really liked it. And that just kind of built itself up from there. Was it always tennis? Were there other sports or was that just the one? I mean, I danced for a little while, did ballet and tap and stuff like all these young girls do at some point in time. (laughs) You know, it's really cute with the little tutus and stuff. But my mom, once they started, you know, with the makeup, my mom was like, oh, you know, six years old (laughs) is a little bit too young for a full face of makeup, which is, you know, very fair. But uh, I like to be outside. I like to be active. I was like... I wouldn't say like a tomboy, but I definitely did enjoy um, being outside and running around. There's always these moments in like any pro career, any success story where it's like the crossroads, the fork in the road moment. And I think for yours, the one that struck me was your school. You know, you've been open about like the upbringing Catholic and how important faith was for you. But they actually said that they would encourage you to specialize and to homeschool. I don't, many people would not do that. Like a lot of schools would not say, hey, you know, it'd be in your best interest, but that selfless act kind of burned your whole career. Absolutely. And it was more the principle of the school. We had formed a very good bond. I saw her as kind of like another, um, like my fairy godmother in a way. I would arrive to school early because my brother's school was a little bit further away Mm -hmm. than mine. So, um, I would arrive at the school like at 7.15, sit outside her office. She would take me into her office and we would just chat about tennis and how my studies were going and things like that. And then, you know, private school, Catholic school, you're only allowed to miss a certain Mm. amount of days. (laughs) And, you know, I was coming up on those days quite often. There were assignments that I needed to do and it needed to be fair for the rest of the class as well. And uh, yeah, I remember the principal sat my parents down and said, hey, do you think she can actually do this like as, as a good thing, you know, cause you guys should invest in it then and, and put her in homeschool so she can dedicate most of her time wow. to tennis and to developing her craft. And that's exactly what happened. Wow. That's, it's very impressive and very powerful stuff. And what was it like when you went back after being a gold medal champion? Oh, and it's so cool. Cause she yeah. was still the, the principal who was the principal at the time. <laughs> she went back to work as a kindergarten teacher cause mm-hmm. she loved that one-on-one with, with younger kids and, we were able to do a small little feature with her and the new principal who is actually, who, who was my third grade teacher. So um, it was really cool to go back and see the classrooms and live those experiences and kind of just be there um, at a place that held so many great memories for me growing up. Were there moments, I mean, I guess that's also freeing that you were able to do this, but were there moments where you felt the pressure kind of mounting? Because now you're going into full-time tennis, and yeah. you're you're better than everyone at a certain age, but then the higher you go up, the, the, the more rare those opportunities just dominate become. When did the pressure, <laughs> when did the moment feel real? I mean, the pressure wasn't that big. To be honest, it, the thing that affected me the most was getting my studies done on time because I dedicated mm-hmm. most of my life to tennis and most of my time and I was the type of person that when I had off time, I really liked to rest. I liked to um, watch movies, kind of let my mind unplug. So when it came actually time to um, finish, you know, my year of schooling, I would always need to pay for an extension. And as much as I didn't want to do that, and my mom was like, Monica, please, can you finish on time? Sometimes it didn't work because, you know, you have to pay for Internet some places in France and, mm. you know, in, in Europe. And you only get, you know, it was like. 
15 euros for two hours yeah. and you're like, oh. So, I mean, it was, it was, um, that was the only pressure on me, but I felt like once I graduated high school, the pressure lifted and that's when I started having some of my best results. And that's when I actually started having more success on tour. So it worked for me once I had more time to kind of free my mind instead of needing to meet all these deadlines. Did you have any real sporting idols? I mean, I know Puerto Rico has a rich athletic history. I, you know, you look at the names like current day, even with like Frankie Lindor and the Elmore brothers before him and Felix Trinidad, the boxer, you know, there aren't that many women on that list. So you were kind of one of the first to kind of get mainstream appeal there. Did you have idols that you looked up to? Well, I mean, in the tennis world, I definitely did. I, I grew up watching Serena and Venus yeah. Williams. Um, I had posters of Jennifer Capriati, Monica Seles on my walls growing up. Um, you know, I lived in Miami. So when it was called the, uh, you know, the Sony Erickson Open and all of these things, I was just very interested in, mm -hmm. in being on those courts. And one of the coolest memories that I have was actually going to um, the Miami Open tournament with my dad many times watching the qualifying and watching the main draw and telling my dad, you know, one day I'm going to be on these practice courts and I'm going to be practicing right here where all these girls are. Yeah. And fast forward, you know, 15 years later or so, my dad is watching me practice and he's right there in the stands <laughs> watching me on those same courts. So it's really cool just to see how things have, have moved, moved forward pretty much. So the first photo I want to go to, this is, I think, 2012 Australian Open. I think this is your, if we look at the monitor here, I think this is you in the 2012 Australian Open a lifetime ago. Jesus. Trying to, trying to, I mean, that's, that's a determined person. They're trying to make their way up the tour. And what I remembered in kind of studying your upbringing uprising was it wasn't this like smooth sailing, like everybody just keeps winning and everyone wants to be like Carlos Alcaraz and just ride all the way to the top. But in your case, there was some checkpoints, but also some adversity. How did you feel adjusting to the pro game for the first time? It was really tough because I always saw myself as like the last one to get to everything. So I was the last one to kind of make it from the junior days up to where I was, the last one to kind of show up for everything. So um, it took me a little bit of time. It was, you know, a big adjustment for me. However, um, you know, once I did finally understand and, and I understood that, you know, no um, – no path to success is alike. So I had to understand that, kind of be patient with myself. But, um, yeah, my junior career ended on a high in pretty much the last six or seven months that yeah. I was a junior. And it kind of clicked and made sense for me. And the same thing happened in the pros where, you know, struggling to make it inside the top 100 for so long. And all of a sudden it just, bam, it just happened. Did you feel like you were, I guess, was there camaraderie on the WTA? It seems like yeah. you made some good friends. I know you and Bethany Maddox-Sands were always, you know, thick as thieves on Twitter, at least. But oh, yeah. The no. locker room seemed like it was a good place for your generation coming up. Absolutely. And I felt like it was kind of, uh, it pushed us to kind of strive for, um, to be better than than mm -hmm. the other one, I know Svitolina and mm -hmm. Carolyn Garcia and and that type of generation that played with me in juniors, mm -hmm. they had a lot of success very early on, and I wanted to be there. Obviously, you know, it took me more time and it was a little bit tougher, but I eventually got there, and that was a cool thing. Um, so it was kind of like that that you know you see somebody's doing well that pushes you to work a little bit harder, right. be a little bit better, and that was what I feel like our generation definitely did well more with monica puig here on tennis channel inside in well all roads in your story lead to the rio olympics in 2016 now 
Did you have any idea going in that no. this was no? Okay. No. Because I saw the post where you were like off to a great start. This like winning one match yeah. meant so much to you, which is so cool. But then to end the gold medal is just storybook stuff. When did I guess that's a better way? When did it start to feel like a real possibility? Because you went through some of the best WTA players in the world. Yeah. So I mean, I honestly I was just happy to be there. Qualifying for the Olympics was something that I didn't even know I had done until it somebody actually told me so I needed to make the third round of the French Open that year and I was unaware my team knew kept it quiet and then wow. I ended up um beating Julia Gerges wow. I think it was like seven five in the third I remember that match Three I had no idea that that match. was so you didn't know the stakes until after the match was over because if I remember no correctly idea. you had a pretty emotional reaction just to notch that yeah. win wow I think it the the reaction was just being three hours on <laughs> yeah. court Oh. The game before the match ended, the supervisor came and told the chair umpire, we are going to suspend yeah. to darkness after this game, no matter what happens. Mm. Wow. So I was like, okay, Monica, you need to get your budding gear because I do not want to come back and have to do <laughs> yeah. this whole thing because that's very challenging. But then when I got off the court, my team told me, like, did you know that this was like, <laughs> I was like, okay, thanks guys for keeping it quiet because if not, I would have been a nervous wreck. Wow. So it was great. But yeah, getting to the Olympics was surreal. I wanted to enjoy the moment and kind of um, live that experience because I've heard so many stories of what the Olympics could be. Um, so very happy to be there. Obviously very nervous before my debut. I just wanted to, you know, start on the right foot. Yeah. And I'd been playing well that year. I was uh, 34 in the world, 37 or 34. Um, so good results, uh, finals of Sydney, uh, you know, semifinals in Eastbourne and a couple of other tournaments I was doing pretty well. But then when I beat Garbine, uh, mm -hmm. in the third round, that's when I was like, okay, I think I need to start reevaluating my priorities <laughs> yeah. here because I am playing too well to not give myself or be lenient with myself and say, yeah. Hey, you do have a chance. Right. Um, you know, I was always kind of counting myself out until that point. It's, it was an impressive run because you beat Garbini, Kvitova, and then Kerber in the final round. You're up 5-1 in the third set. Is that the nervous you've ever been in your life? Yeah, well, I actually had a match point at 5-0. Um, and I keep saying this, the whole third set, I was singing a song in my head, just kind of, we had a, a playlist within the Puerto Rican Olympic team that, you know, it was all Latin songs, whatever was on in the, in the moment that kind of, made us feel good. We would listen to that playlist all the time. So it was one of the songs on that playlist. I think it was a Shakira song. Um, and I was just singing that song. So kind of, I was in the zone without yeah. really knowing what was going on and kind of going on autopilot, playing the type of tennis that is very basic. I know what I'm doing. I'm yeah. reacting to everything on the court, but just flowing. I didn't really need to think really hard about things mm -hmm. and kind of bursted that bubble when I was match point, I was like, wait a minute, what is going on? And kind of, it, it was a struggle to remember what tennis was supposed to be like. I oh. was like, how do I play? What do I do? <laughs> do I even know how to play tennis at this point? Is it like an out-of-body experience? It, I mean, <laughs> everything shut down oh. for me. Like, I just felt so tight and nervous. Mm -hmm. And But and in that moment, I was like, okay, I got here mm -hmm. doing something. And something was working. I just need to kind of... Do that. Beating Kerber in the middle of one of the better years in WTA 21st century, like it was insane. And what I love about the match point reaction is that you haven't even waited for the ball to hit the ground. Like the racket's already up and it's already just It was emotions. insane. I, I think 
that was like the the most tense moment because the ball just felt like it was going in slow motion out and i was like okay come on just like go out because i know i'm like right there <laughs> it's, right. it's over but it was really cool because i think she had five break points i had six match points or vice versa and it was it was a great moment that seems like it would be from the outside just a life-changing altering thing that it feel just i mean i'm sure surreal probably still feels surreal but when did you know, okay, like this changed, like I'm an Olympic gold medalist for the rest of my life? I don't think like it's still real to me that that's the title. I mean, I've heard it several <laughs> times and, and sometimes it's hard to believe because, you know, um, I wish my career would have extended itself a little bit more to have mm -hmm. more opportunity to have better results. But um, it was really just mm -hmm. a dream come true. I remember that night after winning, I would wake up every like 30 minutes to <laughs> touch the medal on the nightstand because, you know, sometimes you have these incredible yeah. dreams and something coming true, like winning something big and you wake up and you're like, okay, well, I'm, I'm in my bed. I'm not where I was dreaming I was. So yeah. that's, a, that's a bit of a shame. But just having the medal there and just being like, wow, okay, it, yeah. it did happen. And the anthem, I mean, has to be the part where it really sets in. Because yeah. you're still, I would imagine, riding that high from any big match win with the adrenaline going. But when you stop, hear your anthem come on last, it's just got to be Yeah, everything. it was, I, I can't listen to the Puerto Rican national <laughs> anthem without crying anymore. Because it's just, I mean, it was the first time that any Puerto Rican ever, had ever heard it on, Olymp on an Olympic podium. Yeah. Um, so the island was also going crazy. You saw those videos, right? I of all did. The watch parties yeah, my agent yeah. showed me just after that moment <laughs> yeah. right there. And he's like, do you have any idea what is going on back home? Yeah. And I said, no, what's going on? He hands me his phone. He's like, you need to look at yeah. this. Who was the, who were some of the people that reached out to you? Anybody that made you blush? Like, I can't believe this person like just congratulated me. Yeah, I mean, it was J-Lo had wrote a, uh, a tweet and yeah. uh, Ricky Martin, of course, <laughs> we, we go way back um, from when I was like 16 years old that we met for the first time and <laughs> just, you know, all of Puerto Rico. But, you know, for me, it was more about my parents in that moment. Yeah. Um, they were the first people who I tried to call as soon as the match was over because we have seven minutes from when we walk mm -hmm. off the court to getting the medal. So I was trying to change into mm -hmm. my tracksuit and trying to call my parents, but since there's so many people in the stadium, <laughs> yeah. I couldn't get a signal, so I was really upset. But, um, yeah, once once I was able to talk to them, that was really the the best moment that I've ever had. When you go, talk about this parade, oh, and, I'm, and so I'm thinking fun. about it from the perspective of just all the young people in the crowd that got to actually see a champion in the flesh. You've got your, your mom up there. You've got a lot of people that support you. It just, it strikes me as the inspirational story because nobody had this example before you. Now, when you interact with children, do you get that sense that you're like kind of become the role model, that they have dreams that might not have seemed possible until someone actually did it? Of course. And that's something that, I, you know, I always hold in my mind uh, day to day that I am an example for so mm -hmm. many but not just that, but for little kids. So my image is something that I always try and, and, and maintain and keep it clean and positive because, um, you know, you want to do all the right things so that the future generation can come up and and, and kind of uh, continue to emulate these good things. And, and that moment for me was just incredible seeing how many people were just there and how proud they were and everything that went on. And, I mean, it was it was. Seems like it was Stunning. a good day. It Seems was like it was so hard to fit fun. into one day. We were we were <laughs> dead by the end of the day. And it was yeah. it was uh, it was 
incredible because it was so hot and I was in <laughs> jeans and we were all in like jeans and, yeah. and our shirt was like much heavier material. So every time the bus would pass over a tree, we were all like, oh, shade. But it was such a beautiful day there in Puerto Rico. It was so hot and it was, I mean, it was, it was fun. It was a great time. Did you find it a little tougher to get back to the pro tour so fast? Like I know. Yeah. Everyone would trade the opportunity to win a gold medal, so it sounds like a first-world problem. But going back to the grind of a pro tour had to be an adjustment after such an emotional high. Yeah, it was really tough because, I mean, a lot of the other athletes um, that are not in tennis uh, said, okay, so you're you're going to take a break after this. I was like, well, I have the U.S. <laughs> Open in two and a half weeks, yeah. so no. Um, I did pull out of Cincinnati, which was the next week, and it was important for me to do that. Um because this is the biggest win of my career. This is the biggest thing that had ever happened to me. And I needed kind of time to process that, but mm -hmm. it, it wasn't enough time. Um, and going back to the US Open after everything that had happened, I was still kind of like in a mm -hmm. mental fog because it just, none of it seemed real to right. me. And um, it, was, it was very challenging. And I know this is kind of a side note, but your new career in the broadcasting world, you have that perspective of what, not on the Olympic level, but what some of these pros have in terms of following up such a moment, whether it's Igas Fiontech or even Jesse Pagula on Shabur having these amazing career years, there's that have to follow up pressure that comes on and you live that moment that they're experiencing now. Yeah, and I, I think they're doing a really good job of it, especially Ego. You know, wow, what can I say? You know, mentally, yeah. she's one of the strongest players yeah. out there. Um, I feel like when I was going through that moment, uh, the topic of mental health was mm. not really that big. And I was really struggling a lot to kind of come to terms with everything that was happening to me, kind of feeling that pressure. And to me, a lot of people would say, you know, if, if you can't handle this pressure and mm -hmm. you can't handle what's going on right now, then you're not cut out for this. Mm. And that was the response. <clears throat> Nowadays, I feel like people are a little bit more understanding to the fact that we're right. going through all this pressure. And, and it's more like, okay, well, let's get help to, to kind of see what you're going through and, yeah. and kind of analyze that in a different way. But during that period of time, tennis was always seen as if you are the strongest person mentally out on the court, that is what makes the difference. Not the tennis, not mm. the physicality. It was the mental side. And uh, one really needed to be strong, and I just didn't know how at the point. Well, it's come a long way just in those five, six years, how important it is and the examples shown at the top. Um, no, I mean, I think it's very few that have walked in that, in that path and knowing how to deal with just the pressures. And I think you've also commented on what Emirata Khan you went through. And, I mean, it's a gift and a curse, right? Social media can just be great to grow awareness, your brands, all that stuff. But I think you said it perfectly. You're never going to please everyone. You're not going to have a hundred percent approval rating of fans across the board. No, of course not. And with Emma, I mean, she became an international star <laughs> in the span of two weeks after not even really being on the WTA tour for that long, just winning the U S open after qualifying, nobody really yeah. knew who she was. And look, she's a very marketable girl. She has a lot of charisma. When I saw her win that U S open, she just looked like this, brand new fresh face who's going to take over tennis. But, you know, thankfully, you know, what she did at the U.S. Open has her <laughs> set for life, so she doesn't have to worry yeah. about that. But um, it's also managing the expectation that comes with all of that. She has now lots of things to do with her sponsors, and, and mm. people can say all well and good, hey, focus more on the tennis than you do with your sponsors, but there are certain <laughs> agreements that you have with your sponsors that uh. you cannot break. There are, 
you know, commitments, there are appearances, there are photo shoots. And in order to maintain these contracts and be in the good graces with your sponsors, you have to dedicate time Mm -hmm. to that. It's just finding the perfect balance. And she's still super young. So she has to learn how to manage that with her team. And I have no doubt that she will come back. She just needs to kind of settle herself and, and find that comfortable balance. Yeah, for it to happen so young in her career to not really have, not even have a full pro season, that's where it's just insane how you know, overwhelming it must be. And that's where, well, luckily, we've made strides with mental health and everything. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A few more things with Monica Puig here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Unfortunately, the injuries derailed the end of the career. Was it a reoccurring thing early in your career? Did you play through pain a lot, or were there moments where it kind of jolted you and then ultimately was the reason why you stopped playing? Yeah, so I was very lucky to be injury-free for the majority of my career. And in 2019, towards the end of the season, I started having big-time discomfort on impacts um, in my elbow. So whether it was forehands, volleys, and primarily the serve and overheads, there was just a point where every time I would make impact with the ball, my elbow would hurt so bad. Um, And I went to go and see a specialist and found out that I had uh, a nerve entrapment. So two muscles were compressing one of my nerves in my elbow. And if I did not have that dealt with, it could have led to more... uh, permanent damage in, in, you know, for, for as, uh, as far as nerves are concerned. Yeah. So I needed to have that taken care of. I did. Um, that was the first time having a surgery for tennis. that was going to put me out for a very, very long time. Um, and that was very new. And then once I started coming back from that injury, my shoulder started bothering me mm. and, um, whether it was compensation from, you know, not knowing what my elbow was going to feel like. And, you know, obviously when you come back from a surgery, there's going to be aches and pains everywhere, but my shoulder just started to get affected and it was really tough for me to serve and to hit balls and ended up going to a doctor and seeing what was wrong. And that was just the beginning of, of the end. It's unfortunate that you weren't able to, you know, end on your own terms, but I think the the big thing is the life after tennis. And I mean, I'm hoping you seem like you're not, in any real pain right now so that's good no especially given all the activities you do off of tennis now yeah I mean I'm trying to play some tennis here and there because I would love to come back and do some exhibitions um my shoulder is not 100 percent um after this last surgery I decided to take uh, a long break from doing rehab Mm -hmm. on my shoulder because it was just too Mm -hmm. mentally uh and emotionally painful to go back to do rehab on a shoulder that you know, pretty much ended my career. So I felt like in a way it was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I need a break. 
but um, definitely would like to come back and, and give my shoulder a chance to even just be out there on the courts and play mm-hmm. a couple matches against some other players <laughs> who have ended their careers yeah. and then, you know, have some fun. But um, yeah, life away from tennis definitely does not suck. It's, it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty nice, but um, I do miss the rush and I do miss everything else. So did you know you wanted to be a broadcaster? Always. Cause I, cause the ESPN stuff starting with there, you were doing it when you weren't officially retired. You've done not only tennis stuff. I saw you at the Home Run Derby and then covering U.S. Opens and whatnot. That was something you wanted to do. You wanted to be an on-camera broadcaster? Always, because I feel like I have a very bubbly personality and I'm not afraid to go up and talk to anybody. Um, Sometimes you have to get me to stop talking uh, because it's just, it's fun for me. And um, I love journalism. I love writing. I love learning new things about new people. So it's always been something fun for me to do and um, had those early opportunities. And it's just kind of uh, escalated from there. (laughs) And it's actually really cool and it's really fun. And and the fact that now I'm able to look at tennis from a non-emotional side and not really care who's winning or losing, but look at tennis very objectively. I see so much more... um, I see so many more things in the game that I didn't see before. Yeah. The Bad Bunny collab must have been nice. That was cool. That (laughs) was really fun because, you know, he's huge in Puerto Rico and he was there and he's actually really shy away from (laughs) what he is when he's performing. So that was like, huh, you know, like even tennis players who put on an act, we're like two-faced when we're on the court, you know, we're all vicious and, and really intense, but then off the court, we're just normal people i gotta ask you because he's been on this show what's it like working with nick mccarville oh my god (laughs) we are we are two peas in a pod i really love working with nick and working with him at the u.s open was the best because it was some really early mornings but we jived so well and we got along and had really great chemistry but that seems to be the thing that when i work with people Mm -hmm. i just i just want to have fun and and even with commentating it's like sitting down and having a an extended conversation on tennis and and it's what I love to do. So got to ask you about this married uh, woman. Now we, yes. uh, you know, I'm not going to play the speeches or anything, we'll <laughs> save that. but you know, it's, it's a, it's a great thing. Obviously, congratulations to both of you. Um, do you feel like you've changed though? Cause still relatively young still, yeah, you know, no, not really because Nathan and I, we have such a great dynamic and, and we're not just husband and wife, but we're, you know, each other's best friends. So like I can talk to him about, anything and know that he will give me his 100% complete honesty and and vice versa. We have seen each other go through many ups and downs. He was the person that I relied on the most apart from my mom and dad during um, the roughest times in my career, which were the surgeries. He was, we were actually texting before my first ever surgery on my shoulder. So, um, you know, he saw the worst of me. He saw the best of me when I was starting to come back and it looked hopeful that I was going to restart my career and, uh, has been the biggest support system. And we have two crazy dogs and (laughs) we're living a a really exciting life because he's also introduced me to marathons and, uh, we're doing our first half Ironman as well, um, in September. So, you know, he's introduced me to a whole new world. I wanted to ask you about that because yeah. the New York Marathon, which is amazing, <laughs> I, I'm I'm jealous of that because I like to run but not that far. 
the month of your wedding is when this took place? It was the place? week before the week a before? wedding. The week, <laughs> no exactly worries. a week before no a wedding. No worries at all? So, uh, I wasn't worried, but everybody who was involved in the wedding, all of you know, the women in my family were like, are you crazy? <laughs> yeah. What if you're not able to walk on your wedding day? I was like, you guys, yeah. I got it. It's going to be fun. And it was kind of like a bonding thing that we wanted to do together, Nathan and I. And um, it was it was really cool because we he had run it before. He told me what to what it what to expect like at, at every point of the of the run so I mean and for me I cried several times during this marathon because <laughs> you know the people cheering it kind of like okay. it brought me back to my tennis days on when people would cheer for me on the court and it just meant so much because it was kind of like a new beginning and something that you know I could work for and it was yeah. a it was a really big goal that I had achieved. So happy tears, not like... Right? No, very okay. happy tears. Right. I was okay. not in pain in any way. That's, I enjoyed every part of it. Do so. you find that replaced like the competitiveness that you lost with not being a pro tennis player anymore and you're working towards a goal? I mean, nothing will replace being a pro athlete, but this is that, that runner's high that, yes. you know, working out as well. Yeah, so I'm still very competitive. I still <laughs> have that competitive drive. It's just... Um, it's something different. And, uh, I put it in my mind that I wanted to complete the six major marathons, uh, before the end of 2024. So they are Whoa. New York, London, Boston, um, Berlin, Tokyo, and, uh, what was the last one? Chicago. Wow. So this year I am running Boston and London in the same week. So one is on a Monday, <laughs> the other one's on a Sunday and, uh, I am running Chicago as well. So 2024 would just be, um, Tokyo and Berlin and a half Ironman, like I said, in Augusta in September, wow. three days before my birthday, three days before I turned 30, <laughs> like, believe it or not. And then there's one in Puerto Rico next year in March, which I really want to do, especially since it's at home. But um, it's given me like a new purpose. It's given me something to work for. And I do really well when I have a goal and a vision for what I want to do. Well, I guess that answers the uh, are you in pain question. Uh, yeah. that's a couple marathons I mean, in a week. I yeah. mean, that's pretty good. No, no it's, the shoulder the yeah. shoulder is what it is. I'm going to have to learn how to swim effectively, obviously, with my shoulder still being very fragile. Um, that's the only thing that I'm, I'm a little bit worried about. But as, as far as the running, there's absolutely no pain because I'm not really using my arms very much. And the, the cycling... Uh, it's been going well. I've been falling off my bike a lot, but you know, that's, that's kind of, uh, what it is when you're learning to use a whole different machine than just a bike that you can go and, and ride along the sidewalk with. I mean, it's, it's very cool that you've thrown yourself into new challenges and especially athletes that have to retire young. There's always the worry that what are they going to do? Are they going to be bored? But it doesn't seem like that's the case at all. No, I mean, I, I think I, I early on, I, I knew that I needed to find something to do. I'm very active already. And uh, for me, it was just, what can I do that I will enjoy? And it was not just the broadcasting side, because I knew I was going to enjoy that, but I wanted to continue mm -hmm. to be active. And uh yeah, it's it's really given me something to work for and to strive for and honestly it's it's pretty fun within the the suffering. I'm getting I'm learning still how to be comfortable <laughs> with being uncomfortable. Yeah. And uh that's something I struggled with all of my career, but <laughs> it seems to come easy now. Well, it's very inspiring. Uh, blast talking to you. This was fun. Monica Puig here on Tennis Channel Inside and the very last question, do you see yourself involved in tennis specifically? For a long time, for a lifetime even? Absolutely, because, you know, tennis is my life and will always be my life. So um, any way that I can get involved, uh, 
probably not coaching on the professional level, but um, I definitely do enjoy working with kids. I enjoy the early development of tennis. Um, That would be something that I'm very interested in and helping young players, uh, you know, get to that next level. And that's, that's something I'm very passionate about, but uh, yeah, tennis, tennis will always be there. I could see you being like, you know, the head having like the army of the Puerto Rican tennis federation <laughs> in like 20 years. You just have an Who army knows? of juniors. Who knows? Maybe that might happen because, yeah. I mean, Puerto Rico is an island with lots of talent. So it's just uh, waiting to be developed. So Okay. Well, we'll try to make sure if it's a 30 for 30 or there's some documentary, we'll try to have the rights here. But Monica Puig, <laughs> appreciate you coming on the podcast. It was a blast talking with you. Have fun calling all the matches this week. And uh, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. Huge thanks to Monica Puig. She's very generous with her time. It was a real treat to talk to such a proud champion and somebody that is looking forward to her life after tennis. Very, very nice to get to catch up with her and wishing her the best on her journey and all those future races that she signed up for. So thanks again to Monica Puig. Now we're going to switch gears. It's Jeff Chisiver talking tennis storylines, tennis on three different surfaces, outdoor hard, indoor hard, clay court tennis. We break all that down, including the return of Carlos Alcaraz. It's Jeff Chisver now here on Tennis Channel Insider. All right, now joining us on Tennis Channel Inside In, we're late into February, tennis around the globe. Uh, guy joining us, graduating in a lot of ways around here at the Tennis Channel Network, producing, hosting, calling matches on the big leagues. This guy played his college tennis at Cal, uh, has a very, very huge win over Sam Query, and is parking in the talent space this week <laughs> at Expo here in Santa Monica. Jeff Chisber, welcome back to the show. You brought up Query last time. <laughs> Terrible. And I never park in the talent spots ever. We reserve those for the Jaguar of Jam Michael Gamble. Oh, God. Two-door Jag convertible. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Can't Got to leave a lot of space for that. But, Jeff, happy to have you back on. Um, again, this is awesome. We got tennis going literally all around the world, 24 hours a day. And I know a lot of people will say that this time of year, like February in particular, is kind of the weird time. There isn't any majors. There isn't any 1,000 events. But... It might be, in a weird way, one of the most important times of year because you literally have events taking place everywhere. We're leading into the Sunshine Double, and this is kind of where the momentum starts. And I use an example like Iga. It all started for her last year. It's kind of starting again this year. But this is kind of the table setter month for literally the entire season. Especially at Tennis Channel, it's like almost the Super Bowl weeks when there's five events this week, I think five events the week before, We've had days where you just, there's tennis 24 hours around the clock where we have three crews, one leaves, the other one comes in. So, yeah, tennis is strange because you start with the Grand Slam right away, two Mm -hmm. weeks in, and then it feels like you don't want to say a lull because every match is so important for everyone at every level, even the challenger level. But it does seem like right when Indian Wells is around the corner is when it heats up again and you get really pumped for the first Masters 1000, I would say the combined one for the men and women. The Middle East swing that we've had that's kind of developed, I guess maybe not developed, but has taken more importance in the last couple of years, I think that's really gotten us going too because there's obviously money at stake. There's ranking points, but we're getting the big names to play meaningful matches in February. Djokovic is going to be in the same tournament, in theory, we hope, with Alcaraz. Everybody's going to be there next week. The women's events have featured, I mean, the qualifying last week 
was stupid. Top in the 40 WTA. and you got to qualify. It's, it's you, crazy. Which, a little tangent, but why can't we expand the draw? Is that not a thing? Can we not do that? You, you got to talk to David Egdis, the okay. turn, <laughs> tournament director extraordinaire. Oh, That's we'll a good go to, call. I like that. Yeah. It's, it's a good little just tennis a, pet Just peeve. a thought, because when Pliskova and Fernandez are playing and qualifying, you know, something might be a little off. But yeah, it's brutal. No, this time of year is great. And even, like I said last year, you look at the people, guys and girls that have won events in this time of year. They've gone on to big things. I want to recap last week before we get into what's going on this week. Taylor Fritz wins Delray, Jeff. He's going to be into the top five next week on Monday. Not quite yet, but the rankings will come out Monday, and he's going to have at least a couple-week run. We'll see what happens at the Indian Wells points defending, but this is a big deal. Taylor Fritz, top five first American since Roddick 14 years ago. Fritz into the top five, uh, a rise that I don't think many people, at least on the outside, really saw coming. I totally agree. He, With that title, which you said was a fifth career title, he's now won four straight finals in a row, and what I don't think people realize about Fritz is that First of all, you got to be super almost arrogant, cocky, and confident. And for all the people I know that are close to Taylor, say that about him. I don't mean it in a negative way, but in this individual sport, you have to walk on the court believing Mm -hmm. you can win. So I truly believe that what people don't realize about Taylor Fritz is that not only is he an extremely hard worker because you kind of seen the movement and the athleticism kind of rise a little bit, but I think he has the clutch gene. Mm -hmm. I think he's clutch. He says it all the time that – he relishes the big moments, the big matches. And when he says it, I, I really believe yeah. it because now he's in the top five. It's unbelievable. The two things that stood out to me in the last, I'll say, couple years. Getting back out on the court at Wimbledon after the injury two years ago was pretty nuts just that he even made that a possibility. And then I really do think there's something about rebounding after just a brutal loss to Holt in the first round of the U.S. Open, crushing. He just goes over to Asia, wins the tournament there, picks up like, okay, this is, you know, it was a setback. But, I mean, we've seen guys and girls get into enormous funks that have lasted months, even years, after a soul-crushing loss. And he just, like a pro, just, all right, next tournament, time to get better. I don't think I also realized, I don't know if you saw Breakpoint, we haven't talked about it mm-hmm. yet, but one of the episodes, they highlight the fact of that injury he suffered right before the final in Indian Wells mm-hmm. a year ago. You're playing Rafael Nadal. You would think that would be the easiest situation to just pull the plug and not go yeah. out there. Yeah, Rafa was a little injured too, but there's something special about the drive and the arrogance <laughs> that you need to succeed the way he does. I'm kind of curious. I don't know. What do you? He's top five. So I, what can he get? To? My I don't know. my question more than that because I know you're a kid like I was who grew up on this debate show culture. How much longer, roughly, do you think he'll be the top ranked American? Like, forget about the number, but he's the guy now. But the but we know 11 in the top 50, because th- I think Mackey's in there now, too. So that's 11 top yeah, 50 11. players, which is an insane number. 20% of the, more than 20% of the top 50 is American. But how long will Fritz have the mantle, do you think? We asked this on TC Live a week ago to Taylor Townsend and Prakash Armitage when I was producing that show, and... I think there's this baseline of consistency for his game and the I guess just the power of his game that because Francis and Tommy have the athleticism and the movement and that we didn't think Fritz had that. But now that the movement has come up for Fritz and Fritz already has the big game. I don't know. I think the easy answer for me is, and you always (laughs) have a, a star with health, but I think he's the top American all year long. I, I, I would, I, would I mean, I agree. And that. I think the over, I mean, I don't know what the line would be set at. I would take the over. Um, 
I think what you got to wonder is the next, and I don't want to, I'll get to Paul and Tiafo in a second, but that next group, like if Corda is going to make strides, if a Ben Shelton is going to make strides, there's still a lot of work to be done. I just think you hit on it. The consistency with Fritz, like Paul and Tiafo, great players, great athletes can get hot, can get in that heat check mode, but they, they pale in my opinion, just my opinion in comparison to the consistency that Fritz has year round. Like, Week in, week out, this guy is going deeper into tournaments. Like, he's not getting tripped up. In a big match, in a big tournament, yes, Tiafo and Paul proved it in Australia, can go further. But I think Fritz is going to be the guy for at least a little while. And I would say several years based on where he has, as at his career, where he has to go. So my answer of a year was easy for you. You're saying even longer than that. Well, what, what is, we always, what's the prime age? Taylor, Francis, Tommy are all at 25. What, I don't know. I think the prime is kind of 28 to 31, yeah. kind of. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, there's no decline coming. It's no, only no. rising. So, when you mention Shelton and Corda, I like, your, I like your over for a year because they're still yeah. years away from they're, where Fritz and Tommy and Francis are. If it was just Fritz, Tommy, Francis, obviously, they're the same age. You're looking at it like that. I'd feel more comfortable. And the unknown is kind of exciting, right? We don't know if Corda's, because Corda's made leaps you know, the wrist injury, unfortunately, looks like he's going to be okay there. Ben Shelton, there's a lot to like. But going into that Delray match against Garone, I, I just had a bad feeling. And it's nothing to do with Shelton himself as a player. But being a pro tennis player, you know, it's hard. Like, there's waves to it. And Marcos Garone's been on tour a long time that people were just assuming, let's just pencil Shelton into the semis and finals of these events. Like, yeah. there's a lot of work that goes into it. And guys are going to study the tape that now exists. So, I would say... I would say comfortably the next two years, I think Fritz is the guy. And how about one important X factor we give our Tennis Channel employee a plug is that he's got Michael Russell, Paul Anacone in his corner. It's really interesting to see which players throw a lot of money at resources to their game. Well, all three of those guys do that, and that's a huge part. Yeah. Wayne Ferreira, Tiafo, yeah. Brad Stein, Tommy Paul. These are proven players with tr- proven coaches with track records. Good call. And now it's exciting to watch. I mean, the number 11 is just a remarkable number when you think about it. And I, I love how they're all different. And I love how there's the threat of it. Now, you know, you don't maybe have the top end, top end, but maybe Fritz can get there. We'll see. I mean, he's he's got the weapons. The way he plays is pretty, pretty insane. Uh, other tournament champ last week with uh, talking with Jeff Chisver here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Carlos Alcaraz, no surprise there. Returns to the court like he didn't really leave. Wins on the clay in Buenos Aires. Defeats Cam Norrie in a pretty good final that Jeff, I thought, Norrie did about all he could do out there. Like, I, I think he showed up. I think he was tactically doing what he could. Just a special player beat him on the other side of the net. He's so crazy. <laughs> it's unbelievable. You're gone for four months, and he's doing the same, I don't know, man, the movement. He's the same shot making. Drop shots, just... It's crazy. Like, this is one of those sports where when you lose the rhythm and you're off for a long time, speaking of which, Alexander Zverev, three and Mm -hmm. five since his recovery from the Mm -hmm. ankle injury. We're talking about different injuries, but maybe we're talking about Buenos Aires. He had a different level of competition, but I forgot how much we miss Alcaraz's smile and the Mm -hmm. athleticism, the shot making when we saw him against Buenos Aires. And Cam Nori, to me, shout out to college tennis, just like, I feel like it's a diss sometimes when you call people an overachiever, but I'm like surprised every time I see him play a top player because I don't think anyone saw it coming, but talk about putting in the work to your game. Unbelievable. 
Yeah, I mean, and off court too. He's been pretty open about that. Uh, an interesting stat that I that I found, and it just shows you how ridiculous the goats are of this era. But Alcaraz making his ninth final before he turned twenty, really impressive. Two more than Djokovic before he turned twenty. Uh, halfway to Rafael Nadal, who had eighteen finals on the ATP level <laughs> before he turned twenty, which is just absurd. <laughs> it's important to keep bringing those back because it was so long ago and he played so many matches and tournaments. That's ridiculous. And he's always going to be compared to him no matter what. Right. Even though they're, I mean, but you see it, right? Like the games aren't as compared. Like I actually, I see more Federer in how Alcaraz actually constructs points and plays aggressively. But Nadal has the intangibles that clearly Carlos has as well, which is exciting to say. The fact that we're going to start to see Alcaraz mix it up with, obviously, Djokovic, hopefully Nadal could come back, is exciting. It is weird to think, though, that Alcaraz wins this week. He's going to have the exact same number of points as Djokovic. And like, I just learned you. I just learned how goes they to the figure that. Yeah, because of the Grand Slam points, right? It's the it's yeah. points at a major. Yeah. No, it's at it's or, combined Grand Slam, Masters, ma- or ATP Finals. Okay, what well, percentage <laughs> of those points are a part of your points? <laughs> yeah, it's so, unbelievable. Basically, and Djokovic will have it, but Dubai will be where they go. We do need to. I mean, Novak Djokovic breaking Steffi Graf's record of weeks at number one, three hundred seventy-seven this week. Three hundred seventy-eight will break it next week. The fact that it's that many weeks is is insane but i think also jeff i mean he debuted at number one in 2011 12 years ago so to be number one just 12 years apart might even be in a weird way more impressive to me than the total number one right weeks what's crazy is i remember i was looking up when alcaraz got the top spot and medvedev did and there's only been i think it's 31 or 32 number one players ever and you start to realize why, because you're following tennis the last decade. It's like it's always the same people. So yeah. I don't know. What is that number going to get to? It's insane. It's nuts. And it makes sense why. I mean, Andy Murray got a lot of flack for chasing it at the end of 2016 and maybe, you know, doing his body harm in the process. But I kind of get it, right? Because, like, you have a shot at number one tennis player in the world. And how many? Less than 35 guys. I mean, less than 30 probably at the time. So. I mean, it's just, it's insane. It's, it's been 31. Dominant. Only 31 yeah. players have been ranked number one in the world. It's kind of similar on the women's side as well. It is remarkable. Djokovic coming back, and we're going to see him mix it up with uh, Alcaraz hopefully many times this year. Uh, other champions last week, Daniil Medvedev got back in the winner's circle. It's funny how tennis works, right, Jeff? Like, he has the first match against Fakino, looks lackluster in the first set, was fairly close to being a one-and-done participate in that event and said he wins the title beat center in a good three set match there has Medvedev reached that point for you where it just seems like it sways one way or the other like he's either underrated he's a threat he's not getting talked about enough or I feel like people have kind of gone the other way sometimes said that he's a little overrated he may have been figured out he dropped out of the top 10 where do you stand with what Medvedev is right now I mean not just what he's done but where he is as a threat in these big tournaments going forward after Medvedev got the win over Djokovic at the U.S. Open, where he kind of munched him up, so to speak, and it was mm-hmm. an easy win, it was kind of like, oh, man, like mm-hmm. he's up there. But since then, Djokovic has kind of shut the door on that and like separated himself from there again. But with that win against Sinner, he's now 5-0 and against Sinner and FAA. So I tend to look at the rankings in tiers, and because he's still kind of separated himself from those two players yeah. that are a little bit younger than him. I was also, I think a lot of people are surprised to know how old Medvedev is. He still seems like he's part of that younger crop, but now he's like really like veteran <laughs> yeah. veteran. Yeah. So 
No, I will not go with overrated with him. Oh. I will definitely not so, go with that. So, uh, yeah, he dropped out not of the top ten briefly. He's back in it now. I think yeah, that in. was part of it, too. Two things happened last year that disrupted him. I mean, not being able to play some of the, like, Wimbledon, obviously, with the Russian band and whatnot. Also, that loss to Nadal was soul-crushing. I mean, that is about as brutal, other than blowing a match point, basically, to be, you know, triple break point, to be basically a straight sets win, was huge for him. I, I like what you said about how, you know, Djokovic getting back on track. The pressure in that match going for the calendar slam, I think, was probably why he didn't play his best Totally match. overlooked when, with that <laughs> result. Right. Yeah. The Sitsipas thing is interesting, though, because if anything, I think Sitsipas has been the one that kind of had to get to, and he do, ha, did get to that level, beating him the last couple times in matches when Medvedev had owned him before. So in a way, I'm not going to say overrated, but I'll say more contenders have emerged, whether it's a guy like Sitsipas getting to his level, Alcaraz coming up. I don't think that his game has been necessarily figured out. I think, if anything, yeah, he's got new threats now, and he's going to have to figure out a way how to beat some of these newer guys. I don't, I also don't, I mean, he's never played well on clay. The grass record isn't there either, so he's always been a hardcourt guy. 15 of the 16 titles on hardcourt. Yeah, that's a great point. It's never been, like, he won a lot of events where it's not sustainable. Like, it's not sustainable to just win every hardcourt event you're in. So I think there's going to be movements in the rankings, and I think he's still at 26, 27 in the prime of his career, so... I'm not worried necessarily, but I would put him behind, obviously, Alcaraz, Djokovic, and even Tsitsipas this year for who I think are the truer contenders. But they got to get a major. That is, unfortunately, we live in the world where it's all true. about the majors. Medvedev has one. When is Tsitsipas okay. or yeah. Sinner or Zverev? When are they so going to get one? So Tsitsipas out of Acapulco with the shoulder injury that he says he got in Australia. We hope it's temporary. It seems that way. I, I just feel like it's going to really open up on clay when Nadal is officially done, which might be now, which might be a couple years. Who knows? Alcaraz is going to be a threat, obviously. Djokovic will still be around there. But we've just written in permanent marker the guy that's won it 14 times, probably the most unbreakable record in sports. I think it's going to open up. So that's where I would say Sitsipas is going to get one. Yeah. At some point, whether it's this year or four years from now. And then I just guess (laughs) because two of the four are on hard and we know how good Medvedev is on hard, so... Yeah, it's exciting. So, so. so gun to your head, does he have more majors than Medvedev when it's all said and done? I think so. I think it might be like in that 3-2-4-3 range one way or the other. You know, maybe Medvedev gets one or two more, and we'll see. Um, what, last thing on the men from last week, Yannick Sinner back in the final. Where do you stand with him in terms of, you know, he had that U.S. Open run, match point away from maybe winning the title if he would have gotten through Alcaraz, had the issues, had some injuries. Started to kind of turn it around, beat Sitsipas in this tournament. Where do we, where do we stand with Yannick Sinner as a legit threat? I just tend to, I tend to side with the players that have that are their games are a little more adaptable. When I think of yeah. Sitsipas, with like I don't know, we throw on the word variety all the time. Whereas Sinner is just kind of like brute force mm. at all times, kind of in a Rublev way, but. I like Sinner above Rublev, even though Rublev gets no props. This dude's been in the top 10 forever. Yeah. He hasn't got past a quarter at a major. So, I don't know. Now I'm getting all jumbled with all the names in the tiers, but I think tiers are I need tough. to see like, elite athletic yeah. defense okay. 
That's to fair. feel good about making that Grand Slam run because of how many matches it takes and to be able to fall back on like scrapping Murray style. Would like you say Sinner's baseline isn't where it needs to be to be a true contender? Because I, I kind of get what you're saying in the sense like he strikes the ball as clean on both wings as anybody. Yeah. But if he's a little off, yeah, how's he going to win? Is he going to defend? Is he going to make life tough for his opponent? And that hasn't been the case. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, he's super young also and has a time to develop some stuff. But when you have like when you have that clean ball, like that's a good base to start is to be able to hit as hard yeah. as he can. So I think he can build. But yeah, I don't yeah, I think he's right about where he should be. Like borderline top ten guy pushing, but we'll see. I feel so stupid like dissing <laughs> like of dissing people's games. But you guys talked about Medvedev before. I just like Medvedev above center because the the range and the mm -hmm. defense no, it makes and sense. just the not missing yeah. lockdown mode <laughs> just doesn't miss. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price. Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas city, go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, Everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Uh, Jeff Chisever here on Tennis Channel Inside, and we can kind of bridge into, into the women and into what's going on this week and beyond. Well, uh, Iga's back just dominant as ever, and in her last five matches has, has had one 6-3 set, and that's it. A lot of bagels, a lot of breadsticks, just a joke. Pagula took three off of her in the final, lost the next set six love. We've had a couple withdraws, uh, players that have been injured and unable to compete against her, including Pliskova. That match that tomorrow, as we record this, will not take place. So Iga's still just dominating in the Middle East and getting ready for a year where she has a lot of points to defend, Jeff, but there haven't been any cracks in her mental. Like She seems like locked in, number one, foot points to defend, target on her back, no problem. It's kind of remarkable to see her just handle all these moments with ease. When we decide which matches to show on Tennis Channel, because there's so many good matches and big things yeah. at once, and if you go on Twitter, you'll you know hear someone talk about, we don't want to watch this boring match where Iga's just like crushing someone 6-1-6-1. It's so crazy. It I don't sounds remember. a lot like Serena, actually. It sounds like a lot yeah. of this stuff where you would say, ah, Serena's just going to win 6 one 6 I What's don't remember a time, I mean, you just brought it up, Serena, when... The spectacle has been how many games is the opponent gonna get? It's crazy. She, is she I don't know. I is she the best offensive and defensive player at the same time on tour? That's yes. kind of what it seems like. Yes, there are players that hit the ball harder. There are less players that defend because she is an elite, elite defender. But the combination, it's pretty insane. And she plays downhill. I think her rhythm is naturally fast as is. And when you're our favorite when you have those expectations i think that actually helps you a lot because she's never psyched out like i've never i haven't seen it even when she lost to rabakina in australia rabakina served well took the racket out of her hand it wasn't like Iga choked 
I love that point you made because when we say she's best on offense and defense, there's players like Rabakina and Sabalenka would have something to say about the offense. Mm -hmm. They hit it harder. They have more power. Yes. It doesn't mean the offense is better. Iga's offense is more dynamic, I'd say. Uh, you know, the forehand's heavier. It's got that Western grip. It translates better on the clay. Like, we always use the word margin, which you well, get that's going to that. be her. That's going to be her. Like, whatever her career ends up as major-wise, we could say, like, 6, 10, whatever yeah. you want to set it at. The majority will be French Open. That's my, like, I'm putting my flag in the ground. She's going to have that be her event, including this year. Like, who could beat her on clay? Yeah. And I think the other part that gets overlooked is she is very cerebral. She will target weaknesses. That French Open final last year, she went right at Coco's forehand from the first game and broke it down. And it's it's pretty special to watch, man. I, I don't, I guess I'd open up with this. Like, do you see, I, mean, I know tears aren't really my thing, but do you see contenders, like, a group like I guess Sabalenka Rabakina are, are the ones maybe that could be her top contenders on tour. No, I don't. Do you? I guess like all we talk about is majors, but it's the best part because that's how everyone measures like the legacy and stuff. First of all, on the defense part, I think Coco would have the argument about being a better defender and she might be faster, <laughs> but defense is like the type of shots you can hit from the yeah. defensive positions and the way she slides into her back and corner, yeah, moving to her left. It's so joking. It's unfair because Coco's and, and I would say Pagula's best surface. I was talking to Ted Robinson about this last week. Their best surfaces are clay. That's her best chance, but yeah. that's her best surface. Yeah. So, so sorry. I, I think hardcore Sablanka or Bakina for sure, because Sablanka has given her matches U.S. Open last year, 6-4 in the third. Just as a contender, you mean? As a contender. And yeah. Sabalenka, I mean, the win today, Ostepe that was an Ostapenko match, right? <laughs> yeah. Just, like, all you have in the first set and then unwind at the end. But Sabalenka, <laughs> we were talking about this before we started, 13-0 and to start the season. That's Serena-esque. That's the last time that happened was Serena Williams. So maybe that, maybe the mental block of not having done it before and now doing it, it's going to open up some of her best tennis. I just, I mean, with Iga, I'm just thinking, like, let's just give her one and a half majors per year. She's 21 for the next 10 years. Are we already chalking up 15-plus majors for no, her? No, 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 no. Let's just calm down. Because the cliff happens for everybody not named the big three. You know? Yeah, you're right. Even Andy down. Murray going at the end of 2016, we're like, this guy's crazy, and then, you know, it happens. But what's she at, four now? No, three. Three. Yeah. Really? That's it, three, huh? Okay. Yeah. She went, yeah, that's right, three. So I would say, uh, I would set the over-under for Ega Majors. Man, this is a tough one, right? I'm going to look stupid. Maybe like eight and a half is realistic I now. crush You that think over. so? I don't know. I mean, what? It, so what? Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. Maybe I mean, nine and a half. Maybe I could get double. The ten is so many majors, you know? We'll see. I mean, there's, there's four a year, though. I, 21. I, it's crazy. Uh, other notes I wanted to make as we kind of talk about the tennis shirt. You brought up Rublev. You were calling that match against Greeksport today. He comes back, saves match points, wins, and he is a guy that hasn't been getting a lot of love. And maybe the biggest difference this year is, uh, I mean, I know he went out against Djokovic and the way Djokovic just dusts everybody, but some, the comeback kid this year, that's two matches this year already in his five victories where he was down 5-2 in the deciding set. Maybe a new Andre Rublev. It's not quite, it's kind of like Happy Gilmore not throwing the club, you know, being a new and restrained <laughs> Happy really Gilmore. He's really good at that fake <laughs> yeah. throw. It's like, no, he restrains himself. Yeah. So maybe maybe there's a breakthrough there. I, I still think. Here comes the putter throw. Here comes the putter throw. I think the second serve is where I have my issues. Because the first serve is not in. And once you get to the elite, the elite level, obviously Djokovic is the standard. But even a guy like Sinner, who we were talking about, they can kind of tee off on his second serve. That would be my. My issue is it's not as easy as for him. I remember, because we, we always 
side with the like true ex-professional tennis players but yeah they talk about the second serve and the backhand mm-hmm. for sure you know he just wants heavy dose of forehands big first serve i just feel we we're always going to talk about the big players we're always going to talk about majors mm-hmm. rublev doesn't have one he's never got past the quarters at a major yeah um but it's there's something about just giving it up for a you know, we tend to glorify players when they get into the top 10 right taylor fritz got in the top 10 or a player that wins a major like i don't or if think they're stuck in a if they're stuck in the same bracket you're saying then we kind of lose patience. Right, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I was going to say, no, I don't think he's going to win a major. I don't think he'll get to a final of a major, but that's what happens. Like, yeah, if you keep losing in the quarters, it's because you're playing probably in the last decade one of the legends of our sport. So I just like to give it up to the dude because no, I know. I, like, I, there's something to say about true. just being in the top 10 for right. like four straight years. There's just something much to appreciate about his consistent professional approach to the sport mentally and physically, uh, not forgetting the fact that he hits the tennis ball very hard and yeah. accurately. So No, I'm, I'm with you there. It's fun to watch. Gold medalist, mixed yes. dubs. Yes. So he's yet to win a Masters, and he's yet to get to a Final Four of a major. But I don't know. We can list so many players <laughs> in the past true. that have kind of like accomplished so yeah. much, but it just sucks because... I don't know. That's all we talk about is like majors, yeah. and but I mean, it's all right. For that long. <laughs> yeah. And just staying healthy. I yeah. mean, that's hard in itself. So that dude is a pro's pro. He really is fun to see him out there. Uh, we'll give him his flowers on this show if nobody else will. Uh, other notes I wanted to bring up: Felix won Felix Ojeda's forty quarterfinals in his young career, which I thought was an interesting number. And the other guy that's doing pretty well, keeping it going, is from the Australian momentum is Yuri Oheka, who at this point. I got to wonder if this next-gen thing is kind of coming on because I read Pete Bodo's article on Tennis.com that the idea and the concept of the next-gen finals has kind of been like a, a launch pad for a lot of these guys. Now, I'm not predicting Yuri gets to the Alcaraz-Sitsipas level but and even center, but it's kind of nice to see that the next-gen has been introducing the broader world to the future tennis stars. I love it when, well, I think everyone that's a fan of tennis that likes to diss the sport for just not getting with the times or trying new things, that's one they've tried out, I think, what, four or five years it's been going on. Mm-hmm. And everyone will agree that's been a huge, huge success, not only for the TV aspect. And the new things, things they, they try. try. Yeah. Love yeah. that. Yeah. And the money's big. And that's, well, that's how you get people to care. But that's a good call. To, we always have that one on Tennis Channel. Yeah. We have the exclusive coverage of that in the States, and you're right. If, if you see who wins that, and that's been – that's hey, if that person wins that, yeah. you know, they're going to be top five, I have guess. You talked, <laughs> have you talked to uh, Mark Petchy at all about how he's on your wavelength at 250? Should we just be trying stuff? Just trying oh, rules and all stuff. Oh, just all 250s? Well, just like, yeah, why not just give, you know – What does he you know, like? I'm down. I think it's more of a just – I mean, obviously speeding stuff up, so that would be the wavelength you'd be on. In yes. terms of <laughs> what, like no time ad scoring. points? Yeah, maybe no ad scoring, maybe, you know. Hey. I mean, why not? There's like totally separate rules for the two fifties. That's when these host tournaments can shell out all this money to get these people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think everyone's just clamoring for any do you, change up in the rules. I'm in. Where do you stand on the French kid Arthur Fees? Because he's got some exciting game. Do you think we're think it's flash in the pan or do you think this could be, you know, France has got that male tennis exodus about to happen. It's already started. So when someone, he's only 18, and when someone looks so strong, sturdy, and athletic, 
I think two things. First, I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy's a beast, and you need to be, be a beast in today's tennis to like last the whole year, win yeah. a lot of matches. But then sometimes it's easy to think it's like the kid in middle school that kind of like grew faster than the others. That like, oh, once the athleticism goes away, first like, kid with the mustache, yeah, you're Russell just like, Westbrook, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or like Russell Westbrook yeah. in basketball. But yeah. um, the way he approaches each shot with his like footwork and his setup. It already looks so professional and disciplined. And then with the shot making, so no to the flash in the pants thing. That dude, there's a, you know, because the French tennis has kind of, you know, gone downhill a little bit as those, you know, big time names have gotten a lot older. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm in on him because yeah. what was that run he did? A, I can't keep track of all these tournaments. It was indoor tennis. He beat Gasquet. Yeah, had a couple it, good wins. Yeah, it, uh, we're no, it. we it, work at a tennis. Gym out here. <laughs> I know they're in Marseille right you. now. Yeah, there was it's uh, Montpellier. Montpellier, not yeah. to be confused. No, I, I agree. I mean, we're all going to be attracted to the flair and the shot making and the excitement. But he had a pretty good serve that he relied on. He was pretty tactical. He would come to net, which is like a revelation now. It's like, yep. whoa, look at this guy coming to net. No, I'm with you. I think that could be somebody to, to keep an eye on. Well, before we wrap this up, it's been a blast talking with Jeff Chisiver here on Tennis Channel Inside In. The unfortunate is I just I'm I'm at a point with Dominic team where I think we gotta start asking some serious questions. Hate to say it, but the confidence just isn't there. It's so brutal to watch. I feel so bad. And I think instead of just being negative on team. I think team struggle tells you so much about how brutal tennis is, right? It's a wrist injury. The dude, you don't forget how to hit a tennis ball. No. No one, they always say this guy's one of the hardest workers in the sport. The fitness is there. The drive is there. But if you just, you take off a little bit of time, you lose that whippiness in your wrist, and then all of a sudden, everyone below you is getting better. It's how subtle the margins are. Uh So if your serious question is this, like, let's all ask you, like, do you think he's going to get back to the top 10 ever? No, I agree. I say, I mean, I hate saying it so fast. Me too. I I watched him in Davis cup. That was indoor tennis. So it's not where he wants to be, but he lost to born a George. That's a fine loss. He also lost to born a Gojo on paper. Not a great loss, but when I watched it, it was like, it made perfect sense why he lost because it makes, it's not fluky. It's not, it's not, it's uh, and it's, I mean, I don't know what kind of pain he's feeling. It's awful. It's just brutal for him that he is feeling it, but it's in his mind. You can tell, like, he's not sure what he's capable of anymore. And it's sad. This is a major champion who was the second best clay court player in the world for a number of years. Oh, my God. How many majors did they already pencil him in for See, that's, like, years ago? Yeah. The Prince of Clay talking I mean, I don't. I hope I'm wrong. I hope this is an old takes exposed thing. But I don't see him being seated at a major ever again. Yeah. I mean. Which would be top, you know, 35-ish with stuff. I just, I don't know. I mean, I, I especially because clay was where he was so good and. You know, he is working hard. We know that he's putting the time in. Yeah. So there was that clip of him, like, you know, playing in the rain after a loss. I just like to chalk it up for how incredibly difficult the sport of tennis is. It's just crazy. I mean, just. And I get why guys walk away at a point when it's like, even like Andy Roddick is someone that he's like, if I'm not top 10, I'm out. And he walked away at 30. Yeah. yeah. When he could have played for a number of years, been that 15, 20 range probably. But it's, you know, you lose a little, and you said it perfectly. Guys are getting better around you. They're not stopping. You take six months off, guy or girl, and you come back. It's not like they stopped. <laughs> you know? And They're no playing one's going to feel bad yeah. for you. No. You're playing for Money. points, yeah. paychecks, because yeah. the margin's so small. 
It's crazy. I guess, uh, yeah, and then you take someone like Murray who yeah. what knows a, he's not going to get to the top of the game, but just a couple deep runs, and he loves to play. He's still loving it. So, yeah, I'm curious to see um, where, you know, we're kind of, it's like, I don't know, we're like, it's like we're cutting his career short, but, you know, he also has a major yeah. champ. You know, he, he can travel around the world. It's not like, it's yeah. not like, it's just tough in tennis because, if you're ranked 30 or 40 in the world, you're losing more than you're winning. And mm. when you're so used to walking off the court a winner, yeah. but now you got to swallow guys, yeah. Like Stan's still going, and he's you know yeah. 38 and wants to kind of end it the right way, I guess, on his terms. Doesn't need the money, obviously. Uh, and Murray, who's in that battle as we record this with Zverev, that guy's just fighting. Like I think he just loves to suffer. <laughs> it, sounds like, it sounds bad to say, but I think Murray just loves playing miserable matches. I think he kind of admits that now, too. He literally <laughs> says that. Yeah, that's always no place. That's why he gets all the wild cards. There's a bunch of chatter out there. They're upset he's getting all these wild cards. Meanwhile, that's why you pay to go and come see him play. Mm -hmm. And the tournaments yeah. are the ones that handle those wild cards. So keep giving it to him. Nobody deserves a wild card in any setting. Like, it's all subjective to what yeah. the tournaments want to do. And he's a draw, and he's exciting. So, yeah, yeah that's where I'm at. That's the Riley Opelka talk. He's just like no one three wild cards. And that ties him for the most all time. It's mm -hmm. tied with Tommy Haas. So I'm sure he's going to break that record this year when he gets Abs to 54th. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, all right, Jeff, this has been fun. Uh, do you have any final thoughts on, because I know you're a basketball guy, Francis Tiafo's underwhelming performance in the celebrity game? So <laughs> I will say this. It's just, yeah, his shot was so sauce. He, I'm sure he knows it. I didn't get to see the handle, but... Everyone defines athleticism differently because he's such an athlete. An athlete is usually running, jumping, fitness. I agree. Athleticism isn't, hey, I'm good at a bunch of different sports, right? Mm -hmm. And clearly, he is not good at basketball. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair. Very fair to say based on the uh, the tape and the performance. And, you know, Pagula saying that he was bad also was pretty funny. Is I there a sport where... Is there a sport you have in mind where those players tend to be good at other sports as well? So we're not talking about athleticism. Maybe we're talking about skill. I think hmm. one of them might be your favorite sport. You think hockey players are balanced enough? Yeah, I mean, I would say if we're talking like adequate, right? Like if that's the baseline, like they're adequate at other sports. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, because if you can't skate, you're going to be terrible at hockey. So, like, that's not going to transition. But, yeah, I and think I. the worst worse than tennis, though, would actually be the fighters. Because <laughs> that's where it's like they don't, they've never done anything with, like, any sort of ball or, yes, you know. Yes, same with soccer. You tend to see, uh, I remember in college tennis, all my friends were super into soccer, all the Euros. And then you'd toss them some keys and they'd have trouble catching it <laughs> with their hands because they don't use hands a lot. So, yeah. I, I like it. Baseball and hockey, they tend to be... Adequate. Yeah, sports. it's like the decathlon event. They wouldn't win any of those individual <laughs> events, totally. but they can play some of them. Well, Jeff, pleasure as always. Best of luck, you know, calling all these matches. We'll be watching, listening, and uh, why don't you do yourself a favor and park in that talent lot this week? Let's go! <laughs> no, I won't. I'll go in the producer. Thank you for having me. Get me back on. Let's go. Absolutely. That's it for this week's episode of Tennis Channel Inside In. Thank you to both guests, Monica Puig and Jeff Chisiver. And a reminder to all you fans out there, you can go to the Tennis Channel Podcast Network on the web at tennis.com slash podcast, where you will find this show as well as the entire catalog of our outstanding shows in the network. We're on all your podcast platforms. Just search Tennis Channel Inside In on Spotify, iTunes, or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. You can leave a rating, subscribe, or review, and get the word out about this show. 
We're back next week. More tennis raging on in the world. We're gearing up for that sunshine double of Indian Wells and the Miami Open. It's going to be a blast. For Monica Puig and Jeff Chisber, my name is Mitch Michaels. Thank you for listening to Tennis Channel Inside In, and we'll see you next week.